If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. Uh, our passage is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 15. In all honesty, we're really talking about, thinking about, meditating on 1 Timothy 1, 15, but we will read a few verses uh, in the lead up. This is week two in our summer sermon series titled Knowing Jesus. Uh, the point of this series is that we would know the truth about who Jesus is and that we would understand why these truths matter to us. Uh, as your pastor, as I think about this series over the summer, one of the verses that comes to mind is Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, where Paul says, Him we proclaim, and the Him is Jesus. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And I just want to submit to you this morning that a verse like Colossians 1.28 is a dividing line that separates all churches into one of two categories. On the one hand, there are churches, plenty of them in the United States of America, where the number one goal is that you would be in. They want to get you in. The end game, the highest priority for these churches is that you get in. They'll do whatever it takes to get you in, into the building, into the doors, into their ministries. Uh, they'll perform for you. They'll entertain for you. They just want to get you in. Now, truth be told, some of them want to get you into the building so that they can get into your pocketbook and your money can get into their offering plates. But some of them have better aims than that, and the aim is that they want to get you into heaven. And if it's by the skin of your teeth, so be it. They just want you in to the church, and they just want you to sneak into heaven, as it were, and that's about the highest aim that they have as a church. On the other side of that dividing line are churches that recognize what we just read in Colossians 1.28, and the end goal is not just to get you in, but it's that you would be mature in Christ. And I hope you understand that Emmanuel, our aim is not just to get you in this building and it's not just to sneak you into heaven, but it's to present you and your family and your children, all ages, mature in Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Well, if you're going to be mature in Christ Jesus, you've got to know the truth about who he is. And you have to understand why the truth about who Jesus is matters. That's what we're trying to shoot for in this series, not just to get you in, but to get you to the point of maturity and maturity in Christ. Now, last week I mentioned to you that as we think about that goal, there's two problems in churches in the United States of America. The first problem is widespread unorthodoxy. You just look at survey after survey, poll after poll, where people who attend so-called Bible-believing churches are asked questions, basic Bible questions about who Jesus is, and they do not know the answer to those questions. They are unorthodox in their thinking about who Jesus is. And you add to that the problem of what I described last week as over-domestication. We have tamed Jesus and made him someone at times something you could even say, that we're completely comfortable with and we are entirely 
casual as Christian people as we come to worship Him. What I'm saying to you in this series over the summer is that when you know the truth, the biblical truth about who Jesus is, not only will you be orthodox in your thinking, but worship will not have any ring of casualness. But when you gather together with the people of God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart will be awestruck. You will be reverent before the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be humble before the Lord Jesus. And these are the two aims that we're shooting for. We want to know the truth about who Jesus is, and we want to respond with hearts that are filled with awe and eager to worship, and we're talking about Jesus. Jesus. Last week, the ruler, the ruler of the kings on earth, we looked at Revelation chapter 1. This morning, we're talking about Jesus the Savior. And our passage is 1 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to say a few words about the book of 1 Timothy as we lead in. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are a group of books that we call pastoral epistles. These are books that the Apostle Paul wrote not to churches, but to the pastors of those churches. You were with us when we went through the book of Titus. You understand this. We talked about this weekly as we went through Titus. One of the unique things about these three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, is that in those three books, not in any of other uh, Paul's other letters, but only in those three pastoral epistles, Paul presents us with what you might call trustworthy statements, and he has five of them. Five trustworthy statements. Five times when writing to pastors, Paul says, Timothy or Titus, this is a trustworthy statement. You need to know it. You need to understand it. You've got to be grounded in this. And the reason Paul wanted Timothy and Titus and pastors to be grounded in these trustworthy statements is that you, the people of God, would in turn be grounded in these truths. You understand when it comes to Christian ministry, when it comes to biblical knowledge, there is absolutely nothing that I am to know and to understand about the Bible and about God and about salvation that I am to hold back from you. The pastor's job, the preacher's job is to proclaim the full counsel of God's Word and to hold nothing back. And these five trustworthy statements certainly ought to be bedrock truths that undergird somebody's ministry and preaching and teaching and in turn, truths that undergird who we are as a church. So our passage is 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. Paul in these verses is looking back and he's thinking about his own conversion experience. He's reflecting on God's grace in his life and he's not casual about it. He's completely awestruck as he thinks about how Jesus Christ saved him. And that's the big idea of our passage this morning. Simple big ideas over the summer. Jesus is the Savior. Last week we said that he's the ruler. This morning we add this truth. Jesus is the Savior. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Father, as your people, we just stop to thank you for your word. We're grateful that you've spoken to us. We're grateful that you've sent your son to save us. Uh, and grateful that you have gone to the great lengths of telling us who he is and what he's done on our behalf. So, Lord, as we think about Jesus, the Savior, this morning, uh, open our eyes. Help us to see that we, uh, like Paul, ought to think of ourselves as the foremost sinner and that we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I took two of my kids to the movies, and the movie of choice that day was the new Spider-Man movie. It's an animated movie, and we went and watched this movie, and I won't give you any spoilers. Once a movie gets out of the movie theaters, I feel like I can spoil it for you, but if it's still in the theaters, I'll give you a shot to go see it on your own. There was a part of the movie that was on my mind this last week. Again, no spoilers. Spider-Man is talking to the villain at one point early in the movie. And the villain is really not all that terrifying early in the movie. And you sort of are wondering, is this really worth all the trouble? Is this really worth Spider-Man getting up for this? And the villain essentially says to Spider-Man, hey, you, Spider-Man, To be a great hero, you need a great villain. And I may not be that now, but I'm working on it. And I'm trying to do my best because I want to be a great villain so that you can be a great hero. Now, if you've gone to any movie, you've read any book, you've tracked along any TV series, you understand that every good story needs tension. If there's no tension in the story, you're not interested in watching. And the way that you build tension in a story is you have a problem. There's got to be some problem that the characters are trying to solve. So in an apocalyptic type movie, the problem might be a a volcano. Or it might be a a world-ending snowstorm. Or it might be a tornado with sharks swirling around in it. Any number of things could be the problem that you're trying to deal with. So that could be a problem, and maybe that creates tension in the story. Sometimes in a book or a movie, the problem is just a misunderstanding. One person thinks this, another person thinks this, they're not on the same page, it's causing dissonance, it's causing conflict, and maybe the tension begins to build towards some resolution of everybody getting on the same page. In a superhero movie, the problem is a villain. And the greater the villain, the greater the story. Because the tension is greater when the villain is more threatening and more menacing and more ominous. And many times you think about your favorite superhero movies or your favorite superhero stories. And those are the stories that have the scariest, biggest, baddest villains in the story. Now what I'm saying about superhero movies and tension and problems and all of this stuff... It relates directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can stand up and say to you, Jesus is the Savior. 
But until you understand the problem of sin, you don't care. You won't care. In fact, until you understand the depth of the horror of our situation as sinners, the message that Jesus is Savior is really quite dull and boring. And we can sing the songs about Jesus being the Savior of the world and all of the songs we sang this morning, and they might stir your heart because of a chord progression or the band or the vocalist, but until you understand the depth of our problem as sinners, the message that Jesus is the Savior is really of no interest to you. And so this morning, our focus is on 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And before we talk much about the saving part, we need to make sure we're on the same page about the sinners part. Now, what we're going to talk about is not everything we could say about the problem of sin, but we certainly should not say less than what we're about to say. What is it that Jesus saves sinners from? What is this problem that we have that Jesus needs to save us from? Number one, Jesus saves sinners from slavery to sin. Sin is enslaving for all people. You need to understand living where you live, when you live, that the world around you wants you to believe the exact opposite of what I just said. The world wants you to believe that God's rules, biblical morality, are binding and restrictive and limiting and that God's rules will keep you from your full potential as a human being. They will hold you back. The world wants you to believe that the way to freedom, the path to freedom, is self-actualization and following your own heart wherever it may lead you, making up your own course in life, doing things your way. That, according to the world, is freedom. Just live whatever you want to live. And you just have to make a decision. Am I going to listen to the world or am I going to listen to the Word of God? Because the Word of God says that sin is enslaving. Jesus said this in John chapter 8. Jesus talked about the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're captive to it. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 16. Paul lays it out with two options in uh, Romans 6, not 16. Paul says in Romans 6, you will either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Those are the only two options as Paul lays it out. And he explains how it is that a person might become a slave to righteousness. He explains what that means. But you understand the only other alternative is to be a slave to sin. Sin is enslaving. Jesus did not come to this earth to give you a bullet point list and to say, if you do this, one, two, three, you will be a really good, nice person. It's not his purpose in coming. He came to free you from bondage and slavery to sin. Secondly, Jesus saved sinners from spiritual death. Spiritual death. 
as an American, when we begin to talk about sin, the primary word association game that takes place in your mind is sin is bad. Sin is bad. That's how Americans think. We don't think about sin much, but when we think about sin, we say sin is bad. And especially if you begin to say that someone else is a sinner, what the world hears is, oh, you're saying they're bad. If you call someone a sinner, you're saying that they're a bad person. Now, I'll be honest with you. The Bible never describes sin as good. So there's a a fitting aspect to thinking about sin and bad being together. But that's not the primary biblical association. It's not the foundational biblical association that ought to pop into your mind when you think about sin. The primary baseline association is not sin is bad, but it's sin leads to death. That's what you read in the book of Genesis chapter 2. When God is talking to Adam and Eve in the garden and he's talking to them about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he says, don't eat of this tree. You can eat from any tree of the garden, but not this tree. Why? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely become a bad person. Not what he says. In the day that you eat of it, you'll die. Sin leads to death. That's Genesis 2, baseline, biblical truth. Sin leads to death. The prophet Ezekiel said it in chapter 18. He says, the soul who sins will die. Paul said it to the church in Rome. Romans 6.23, the wages of your sin is death. It's not badness. The real wages, the real consequence of your sin is death. Sin leads to death. You read it in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. It's not just that you were a bad person when you were a sinner, it's that you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead to the truth about God. Dead to the things about God. Slave to sin and spiritually dead. Jesus did not come to give you a three, four, five, six, seven step program to moral self-improvement. That's not why he came. He came to free sinners from slavery to sin. And he came to give life, abundant life, to people who were dead in their sins. Number three, Jesus saved sinners from an eternity in hell. Hell's a real place. It's a place where God gives sinners what they want. He gives them over to their sin. It's a real place where real people will spend a real eternity separated from the glory and the goodness and the grace of Almighty God. They'll be given over to what they want as sinners. The Bible has a lot to say about hell, and you may or may not be surprised to know that Jesus says a lot of what the Bible has to say about hell. In just one parable that Jesus told, Matthew 25, he ends with these words. He says, there will be those on the left, and they'll hear, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. And we often pull statements like this from the mouth of Jesus and we set it before people and we say, well, which one do you want? Do you want hell or heaven? 
Do you want eternal death or do you want eternal life? And we just sort of set it before them as if it's just a matter of a simple choice. But what have we already said about sin? Number one, it makes us a slave. We can't free ourselves from that slavery. Number two, it makes us spiritually dead. We can't bring ourselves back to spiritual life. Thirdly, we might look at this and we might say in the Matthew 25 verse, Jesus says the righteous will go to eternal life. Are there any righteous? Paul says in Romans 3, there are none righteous. No, not one. This is a problem. Slavery to sin, spiritual death, and eternity in hell. Fourthly, Jesus saves sinners from the wrath of God. Just a few verses I'll read without much comment. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I just want you to pay attention to the grammar. It doesn't say in John 3 that if you refuse to believe in Jesus, then God's wrath will come upon you. It says that if you refuse to believe the truth about Jesus, if you refuse to obey him when he calls you to repentance and faith, God's wrath will remain on you. Meaning it's already on you as a sinner, an object of wrath. Paul talks about this in Romans 1 very clearly. He says the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. God's wrath is real. If you've been with us for men's Bible study and women's Bible study, we've been studying through the book of Revelation, and we've been talking an awful lot about God's wrath. Revelation 6 describes God fully and finally outpouring His wrath on mankind. It says the kings of the earth, the great ones, generals, the rich, powerful, everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they called to the mountains and they called to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the faith of Uh, the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? If you're going to read the Bible, you're going to have to wrestle with the wrath of God and you're going to have to come face to face with the fact that sinners are objects of God's wrath. We are children of wrath. We are under God's wrath left to ourselves. And I just want you to hear what Paul says. 1 Timothy 1.15 Here's a saying that's trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did not come to affirm you as you are or as you want to be. He did not come to scold you or to shame you for who you are. He did not come just to teach you a multi-step process of self-improvement. He did not come just to hang out with us because he had nothing better to do. This is a trustworthy saying, and it's worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Question that we'll end with is, how does that happen? How did it happen? How might it happen in your life? 
And to answer that question, I would just ask you to turn the page in your Bible, just maybe two or three pages to the right. Find Paul's second letter to Timothy. Part of me really wanted this passage in 2 Timothy 1 to be our main passage. Uh, and as I wrestled and went back and forth, I landed on 1 Timothy 1.15. And this will help us understand how it is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm just going to read verse 8 to verse 14. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I just want you to see five pieces of this puzzle in 2 Timothy 1. There's more we could say, but really there's not less that ought to be said about how it is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Number one, God the Father gave His people grace in Jesus before the ages began. He gave them the opposite of what they deserved. That's grace. And he gave it to them in Christ Jesus, not through any other world religion or faith system or plan for personal morality, but grace in Jesus Christ. And he gave it to them before the ages began. It is not something that he gave us according to our works, which are filthy rags, but it's something that he freely gave us in Jesus before the ages began. Secondly, God the Son took on flesh and he died a sacrificial death. Paul says in verse 10, now Jesus Christ has appeared. That's the miracle of the incarnation. It's God becoming man and dwelling among us. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. Paul talks to Timothy about death and sin being abolished. That's the miracle of the atonement. It's the cross and it's the empty tomb, the resurrection. Thirdly, this gospel message is proclaimed to sinners by human preachers. The gospel is not proclaimed by angels. It's not communicated through dreams and visions. It's shared and it's spread and it's communicated through people like you and me, human beings. People who have been saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ, opening our mouths and telling other people the good news. Paul says, I was appointed a preacher for this. To tell other people that there's good news, there's salvation in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, by God's grace, sinners believe. They believe the good news about Jesus. In verse 12, he says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. 
And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Some of you grew up singing hymns at church. You think about that verse. The cadence in your head is, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. The call on your life is to believe. Number five, God the Holy Spirit dwells with believers and guards their salvation. The passage we read ends with Paul calling Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to him, but he guards it according to the Holy Spirit that's been given to him. And up above, the the confidence Paul has is not in his own ability to guard anything, but it's in God's ability to guard what's been entrusted to him. When you back up from this passage, and we've just walked through it very quickly, this is what's clear. Salvation is the sovereign work of the triune God. It began before the ages in eternity past when God gave grace to His people in Jesus Christ. It was secured and accomplished with the appearing of Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection. It's applied to you, or it's been applied to you, when someone opened their mouth and told you the good news about Jesus Christ. And it was received by you when, by God's grace, you believed. Not when you checked off a list of things to be a better person, but when you believed the good news about Jesus Christ, the Savior. And if you've done that, the Holy Spirit's been poured into your life And the Holy Spirit dwells with you, and the Holy Spirit guards and helps you guard what has been entrusted to you until the day of salvation. That's what we mean when we flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we say, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Savior. And it's certainly at the heart of what we mean when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church. You understand, when we take the Lord's Supper, we come with nothing in our hands. Completely empty-handed before God. We come with the mindset of Paul, who said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, When I look at my sin... I see a foremost sinner. I see somebody who's fallen short on every count. In the Lord's Supper, we confess our sin and we put our faith in Jesus the Savior. Jesus who came to save us from slavery to sin. He came to save us from spiritual death. He came to save us from an eternity in hell. And He came to save us from God's wrath. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to the Lord's table as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. Uh, My encouragement to you as you prepare your heart is that you think about your sin. You pray that God would help you to see the truth about your sin, to shudder at the consequences of sin, 
to understand what Jesus has saved you from, and also that you would see the truth and love the truth about Jesus being the Savior. So I'm going to give you a moment to prepare your heart, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.